Welcome to episode 182 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and today my special guest is Ten Strike Racing's very own Clay Sanders. Me and Clay go over three races from this past Saturday at Oakland Park. Those races were 8, 10, and 11. And some angles that we talk about are how important it is to have races under your belt and not come in off the layoff over the heavier track that is Oaklawn Park. And we also talk about in these stake races how important Lasix on versus Lasix off is when looking at buyer speed figure improvement. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest for this week's edition of Redboard Rewind. Someone I've had on the show plenty of times talking Oaklawn Park Racing. It's Clay Sanders of Ten Strike Racing. Clay, how are you? I'm doing great, Spencer. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Hanging in there. Glad to have you aboard. Bit of a wet track this weekend over at good old Oaklawn Park. For me, I've never been one that has a problem with going over wet tracks. Everyone else, you know, always says, man, it's it's time for the long shots to come out. And as that it does seem to be a thing that does happen. I feel like a lot of people kind of stick to their same bankroll and they don't guess like, Hmm, I'm usually not the best on wet tracks instead of taking back the bankroll a little bit. They're still aiming for pick fives and pick sixes. Whereas maybe it's better to just stick with those doubles and pick threes. That way you're not adding so much bankroll into races. You really don't have the best opinion on. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think in general people should try to play simpler Anyways, you know, bet to win, bet doubles, and leave the pick fives to the computers. But especially on the, on tracks that you're not comfortable with, you know, unless you have like a big opinion, you know, a couple, two or three singles, and, you know, with a small bankroll trying to hit a lot uh, in a pick five. But in general, I agree with you. Uh, you should just stick to the simpler bets on off track. I think another thing, and this is just something from reading so many handicapping books over my career, something that I don't think a lot of people – even seem to think about is a wet track is not a wet track like it would be for say aqueduct where i like to play a lot compared to oaklawn where you guys are always playing so when everyone sees oh this horse was three for three on a wet track unless if it's at like three very different tracks like gulf stream southern california and kentucky i like to see the horse do the wet track races on that track is it a lot of people will move up a horse that, you know, even has board hits on a wet track. And yes, like maybe it's a slight move up for me, but cause they can handle at least some type of wet in the track. But once if I see a horse that, you know, on a sloppy day, like we have at Oakland, once if I see wins like that happening, it's hard for me to really give that much extra push forward for a horse that isn't already going to be, you know, a low priced horse due to a nice wet Tomlinson rating, or just the people that think that, Oh, that one good race on the wet makes them an easy favorite in this race. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's so much to unpack when you think about wet tracks. I actually enjoy betting wet tracks. Um, I think there's a lot of sire power. I mean, you've heard us uh, drone on and on about Munnings and wet tracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yesterday on Sunday, he had his own straight pick three and races two, three, and four uh, with the winners. But to your point about there are no two wet tracks that are the same. And the track on Saturday to Oakland played quite a bit differently than Sunday. 
and it's that whole drying out, you know, how's the track played differently when it's, when it's actually taking the moisture versus when it's drying out certain paths. You got to be careful at Oakland, the inside while it's raining is not the place to be because it really pulls up down there. But on Sunday, it wasn't taking rain. It was still sloppy and the inside was actually where you wanted to be. So you just have to be very mindful, pay attention to your track biases and you have to watch, watch races and see what's happening. And that that's a key, right? You always hear people are like, I just brought a friend on yesterday to an OTB and we were playing Aqueduct and, you know, you see the guys come in there and they have the form open. They're playing four different tracks. I, I can't remember the last time I went to an OTB and saw a guy wants to be hit a big pick three or a big pick four because he just ended up hitting it for like 15,000 that do well playing so many tracks in a day. And obviously you, everyone can do whatever they want with their money. But like when you really want to try and make money in this game, First of all, the takeout's going to kill you. And second, if you're really focusing on one track, that's where, for me, the most fun in the game happens because you have those sneaky trainers that, you know, maybe only bring six horses to a meet. But because you've done your notes from the last meet, you know that they were five for six in the money and they were all long shot horses because no one ever realizes who the connections are. And that's what makes this game fun for me is finding out, you know, one of the my favorite things to do on Formulator is looking at wet track numbers just for every trainer because... There's certain people, you know, Wesley Ward, Linda's another one. If it's a drop around the track, it scratches galore for them where you just, they might have seven right. on the day and now they're down to one or even zero. And so knowing yeah. what trainers kind of understand their pedigrees, understand, hmm, okay, this horse will take to the wet track. It's nice to see that come out into a number that you can then antiquate into a wager. Now, listen, are there certain, you know, people, and obviously with you, you know, being part of the, with the ownership group, if owners are driving from six hours away, it's going to be hard to tell them, Hey, we're going to scratch the horse because of the wet track. Cause nine times out of 10, they just want to see the horse run, whether it's, you know, obviously a win is exactly what everyone wants, but if the horse runs seven, you know, it's still that, you know, when a horse has been, you know, sitting on the bench for three months, it's nice to see the horse run for every once in a while. Yeah. And it depends, you know, do owners, how much do they care and how much do they understand some of that too? And the, it can also depend on the trainer, how much control he has. Does he want to, is he more care? Does he care more about his win percentage or keeping his uh, owners happy? And the further along a trainer is in his career, the more he's more about you know managing his stable, not worrying about what the owners think. So there's a lot there. And you know you're right, playing too many tracks. I mean, a lot of it is: are you in it to try to make money, or are you trying for entertainment? And, you know, you see those guys at the OTB; they're playing five or six different tracks and betting forty different races. You're right; they're gonna get chewed up, but they're there for entertainment. You know, so I hate to poo-poo on it, but, you know, if you're really trying to be serious about it, you have to focus on one circuit, one track, and maybe spot play if there's some courses that you know or you're following that are running other tracks. But you can't play all the tracks on a, on a Sunday. It's just too hard to do. One thing for me, and I, you can answer this if you want to or not, but I've always wondered that when it comes to trainers because you would imagine it's your day, it's your day job. You want to have the highest winning percentage you want. But at the end of the day as well, you, you you do hear from certain trainers when they bring up winning percentages and in interviews or just overall that they run the horses where they think that they're going to be the best you know chance to win. And if they don't win, so be it. But you always see these certain trainers, you know, that are just 12 percent year in, year out. And you wonder if they were just a little bit more careful with the horses and could get up to 16, 17 percent. Would it really matter that much when we compare to the super trainers now that I forgot what it was? It was the, the stat between for Cox. Baffert and Pletcher, I think they have 32% of like the triple crown nominations, which is just absolutely bananas when you think about it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I've known Brad since he had 10 horses and he is obsessed with his win percentage. And I think, <laughs> I, I, I mean, they'll drop horses that you know can win at a higher rate, but they, you know, they're worried about their win percentage. And if you think about it, Spencer, a lot of these guys that rode, you know, got from small to big and they were obsessed with that winning percentage they know that that's how they got those horses. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to go back on how, what got them there. And back to that 12% trainer, you know, why are some of these small trainers don't get more horses? Well, when somebody's looking at send, you know, spending two or $300,000 on a horse and they go look at who they're going to send the horse to 12% trainer versus 20% trainer. That's a pretty simple decision without taking other things into consideration and how big the stable is personality and fit and all that stuff. But they look at win percentage and I tell all my young trainers is like, you need to manage your win percentage. And some of that is going to ship, you know, you're based at Churchill, go ship and win a few races at Belterra. Mm -hmm. Cause when people look at that win percentage for the year, they're not going to know where all those races came from and you can sneak and get that win percentage. You may be 12, 15% in Kentucky, but you may be 25 in Ohio and you add it together and it looks like you're 20%. And that helps get you one or two phone calls of an owner and, you know, you're just trying to get that that opportunity. Somebody sends you one or two horses and then you can make something happen once you get it. But if you don't ever get that call, you never get that opportunity. So I think it's really important. I think another thing for me, and this is obviously uh, Steve Asmussen just got through with that big winning milestone. And obviously he races horses everywhere in every single track in the country. It seems like he has 45, you know, runners sometimes on certain Saturdays. For me, right. the main thing is, if the trainer, the main, main trainer is not based at that track, I've always wanted to see a way that the form or in some way they can give the assistant trainer a little bump because a lot of times you'll see when they go out on their own. Like, I think a lot of people don't realize, yeah. you know, Sherry DeVoe was pretty much Lady Eli's main quote unquote trainer. Like Chad was in there. Yes. But a lot of her success went to someone like Sherry DeVoe. And when she came out, I remember how much I just didn't play her dirt horses. I played most of her young turf runners and I started doing so well and everyone's like how do you keep betting Sherry in these spots and I'm just like if you think about it from that aspect because that came out in that interview that she was the main one to do it you don't hear that a lot yep. with other assistant trainers and it's hard for me when you know when I come up and I see all these guys with zero percenters and is it a is a trainer on a suspension is this the, is this a brand yep. new trainer that I've just never heard of or have they been under these barns of Lucas Pletcher Baffert you know Brad Cox and there's got to be a way that we can make it you know not so that the main trainer doesn't also get, you know, the winning percentage up there, but a way that we can show that, yes, it is, you know, Asmussen, if it's on a Saturday and there's derby props, he's not going to be at Lone Star. <clears throat> How can we get these other people the notoriety that they deserve? No, I, look, I mean, I think that's important for what you're saying, but I also think there's even for a gambler is knowing where these horses are based and, you know, do, do all the strings hit at the same percentage? I'm pretty comfortable knowing like at Brad's different uh, assistant trainers have the same program and they win at about the same percentage everywhere. But I know it's different. I mean, Asmussen up in New York doesn't win at the same percentage he does everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I think at when it's Saratoga and he and Scott are there, they do a little bit better. But I think you can find some of these soft spots and some of these trainers looking at different divisions and where these horses are based. So I think that's a fantastic idea. I wish we could track it better in the statistics. Listen, somebody who doesn't have a day job, let's get on that. Let's figure out exactly how good some of these assistant 
trainers are doing at certain spots. But enough of that riffraff. Let's try and talk about these three races. We're going to go over races 8, 10, and 11 from Oakland from this past Saturday. It was a sloppy racetrack. The first race is race number 8, optional 50,000, N2X, six furlongs on the dirt. Like we said, sloppy track. You said you do like sloppy tracks. What did we come up here in this race, Clay? So this is uh, what's an interesting race. Uh, Oakland uh, fielded this. Uh, they had the one this race in the book, but it split, and it shows you the depth of the um, third division at Oakland. A lot of tracks can't even get one an N2X to go, and Oakland gets 19 uh, entries for this race. They split it and have nine in this one and 10 in the ninth race. Um, so my main opinion in this race uh, on Saturday was I was against the favorite Flapjack. Mm-hmm. This was a horse. Um, you know, Chris Hartman's been on fire. He claims this horse off Villa Franco and he wins the next time out. He claims for third and then he wins a starter. But there's a major difference between a starter and a N2X at Oakland. And even digging a little bit, you know, under the hood on this horse flapjack, he got away with a really slow pace and went 46 and two for the half. Got a big number and went held on, but he just over, laid over that field. No one went with him. So he was a horse I definitely wanted to play against. He did have, you know, two back-to-back wins in the slop, which does count for something, but they were against much easier competition. So I was not a fan of that horse. Um, I thought the two horse was a little interesting, had some success on uh, the wet, no shirt, no shoes, and had some late pace uh, in a race I thought may have a little bit of pace going on here i thought the uh the two the um the one was gonna go and i thought five and probable journey were gonna um, duel early that was another reason i was against the one because i thought the five was going to keep him company at my first pass through um and we've talked before last time i was on about the morning line maker being so awful at oakland mm-hmm. and it really can mess with your mind when you're going through because if you look at number five and probable journey and, and you know you just by habit you go, oh this horse is 12 to one man i'd love to bet this horse at 12 to one so <laughs> You know, I kept coming back. I was like, man, I like this horse at 12 to 1. Might get the outside stalking trip. But, you know, of course, on the day, this horse is 4 to 1. And, you know, any value you were thinking there, you know, is long gone. Um, but I thought, you know, that horse was getting over bet. You know, this horse had run 84, 83, 80, 88, was going to have company up front. So I kind of, you know, was not a fan of that horse at the price. The sixth in my first go through, Spankster for D. Wayne Lucas. This horse um, had, you know, he'd gotten this horse from Willis Horton uh, from Dallas Stewart, you know, trainer change, same owner. This horse really responded getting into uh, Willis or into uh, D. Wayne's barn. I mean, if you, I know you're into old school uh, handicapping the buyer par for the race mm-hmm. 91. This horse ran 91, 94's last two. So, you know, that definitely caught my attention. I wasn't really a fan at five to two, but, you know, on the day, this horse is five to one, you know, getting some value. The one thing that gave me a little pause on the sixth was his uh, last two mud races or slop races were not as good. You know, he went 94-91, but then two slop races at 83-81. So that gave me a little bit of pause. I think if I wouldn't have had um, those two, um, it wouldn't have had those two bad races. I would have been all over Spankster at 5-1, to one, but the, the, those races gave me a little bit of reason to be concerned. The eight, um, the eight Albizu. Uh, was probably the one I landed on um, just for uh, lack of not liking the other horses. Uh, wasn't crazy about the three to one, but uh, Robert Tuna Diodor has been on a roll. This race, uh, horse two back on a muddy track, ran a 90, uh, looked really impressive uh, in, in his N2X. And uh, I just thought that horse was the, 
the horse um, to land on here. And this is so funny because I also had, when I was going through the first run through, I was like, man, Spankster, you know, five to two, such a short price. And you looked at the 94 and the 91 and you didn't like the two wet track races. And to me, I kind of thought the wet track races fit in with everyone else here. So when yeah. I see the price go up, to me, that's more, I'm ready to give a shot to, you know, okay, ran two lower wet track races, but the wet track races fit with everyone else here. Now we have 91 and 94. Is he just the better dirt horse? I mean, the numbers would say so, but also is maybe the form also improving and ha- just missed at a level, you know, that $100,000 allowance last, and he pretty much had the same exact price of seven to two. I-, I was pretty much all in on that horse until I just looked back at no shirt, no shoes. And the price on this one at 22 to one, I could not let go of. If he's going to have the same type of numbers, and yes, he did have a 76-3 back in the mud, but I just thought these last two races at these optional 62 and optional 75s, listen, he had an 82 all the way back in April 16th at Oakland on the slop and that optional hundred just missed by less than two lengths. I'm not saying the form is still there, but the fact that he ran on the board two back at 21 to one, this horse has just been forgotten about every single race Four of his five wins have come at this six for a long distance. And listen, he's got two wins at Oakland. So distance, all of the rest of the stuff kind of fits in at 22 to one. I kind of snuck this one in across the board, win place and show, but Spankster at that type of price too, is one that I probably should have added or at least played exact as with. I agree. Uh, that, I mean, your comments about those two, you know, he didn't run as well. I probably put too much stock that the numbers went backwards, but you're right. We're still fit in. I mean, improbable journey was 84, 83 on a dry track and was four mm-hmm. to one. Why was this horse five to one with similar in the mud and two dominant uh, dirt numbers? I agree. With that, it's me on no shirt and no shoes. It's a Bizu for Clay. Let's see who gets it done in this optional claimer right now. Alba Zoo, Improbable Journey, Spankster, Fitzpatrick all break well. Flapjack away next, and the early trailer is No Shirt, No Shoes, and Improbable Journey is quick up the backstretch. Improbable Journey, a, a length and a half in front of Fitzpatrick. Now Flapjack moves through inside of Spankster and takes over third. Mucho is fifth with about four lengths to make up. Alba Zoo broke very well, but now he's second to last alongside no shirt, no shoes. Improbable journey, and now Fitzpatrick on the move. And here's the veteran Hall of Famer John Velasquez and Fitzpatrick to challenge Improbable journey. These two have sprinted three lengths clear of Flapjack. Then comes Mucho, Spankster, and No Shirt, No Shoes. The trailer is Al Bazoo, and the leader is Improbable Journey. Fitzpatrick with every chance outside of him. These two head off the top of the turn, and Fitzpatrick has taken over the lead. Spankster catches the eye back of the pack, and here comes Spankster, and he means business. Fitzpatrick has the lead. Spankster alongside. No Shirt, No Shoes up the rail, and Spankster has now taken over the lead. No Shirt, No Shoes. A late run from Al Bazoo. Spankster, no shirt, no shoes. Al Bazoo. Spankster in front. And it's Spankster who gets it done, paying 11.40 with the buyer figure coming back in 89. Listen, sometimes you just overthink yourself. No shirt, no shoes runs second for me with an 87. <clears throat> so, I mean, I still end up making money there with the 14.60 place and $6. But for this horse to pay almost $12, and you look at where the other horses ran, like we had talked, you had talked about the favorite. I hadn't really. But when you look at the number one horse here in Flapjack, just running these stronger paced races, and like you had said, because you play Oakland all the time, you know the book. Optional 30s are definitely not as good as these optional 50s. 
And not only that, yeah. he claimed he put the horse in for a place where it can't get claimed out of, which is usually a strong move. And the horse went backwards, buyer figure wise, with yeah. a slow paced race. Everything there. If you've ever seen a fake win and then a jump in class yeah. next time out, this is the what just predecessor of don't play these horses. You know, you can go to the wedding, don't go to the funeral. No, that's 100% true. And this horse was not going to get a slow pace today, uh, uh-huh. on Saturday. I mean, that was guaranteed to happen at this higher class level. And, you know, people are betting Hartman almost anything he uh, runs out there, especially if they, uh, you know, have been winning. Uh, I mean, this was just a classic horse to bet against. And, uh, you know, I was right on Spankster did uh, go backwards in his buyer uh, on the wet track, but it was still good enough to beat these. And I feel as well, and you said to go backwards, and it did, but still, it's technically the best wet number he's ran out of the last five races. Yeah. And when yeah. I, people are so just, and I, listen, I get stuck in it too. They're so focused on one number when it comes to buyers. It matters on how they ran them. Just because the horse ran slower wet track figures, it means one of two things. This doesn't automatically mean that the horse is better on dry dirt, but maybe now the form is improving. Now maybe those wet track numbers can be elevated a bit, and this one elevated up to an 89. Listen, got the job done. Abizu at, you know, a little less than three to one runs in 86. I mean, you see pretty much every horse in this race is running those those 80 figures. I have my buyer power is 91, so a mid-80 around there gets it done. That's the top three horses in there. So this was a very competitive race when you look at, you know, who didn't really run. Improbable Journey didn't run that well. Flapjack, obviously, did not did not run all that well on that wet track. But overall, when you're looking at these types of races, and like you said, these races split, they're very competitive, even though, even though they're splitting in half. Right. And that's what's so great about Oakland is, you know, if you like betting dirt races, you're getting all of, you know, all these different conditions go and you get to watch these horses progress. It's, it's a fun, uh, fun meet to watch. Let's move on to the next race. Race number 10, the grade three honeybee, one and one sixteenth miles on the dirt. We have horses stretching out here. We have pretty much, Everything under the sun. I, I thought a couple interesting horses in here. I thought Grand Love with Rosario and Asmussen. I just wondered, you know, when you look, the best figure is an 84, and that was first time out against Maidens. Now we go two straight stake races, slowly improving back to the 84, but maybe this one's more of a – it's hard to say he's more of a sprinter than a, a router because of Gunrunner, you know, obviously being there on the top. But Candy Ride kind of gets him to go all different uh, routes of ground thought wet paint with Pratt and Brad, obviously this is one that I was more interested in because we see sloppy wet track win wasn't the highest figure, but we see improvement. That optional 50 was a nice solid second and then gets that nice win closing more with a slow paced figure. So that figure might even be even better than a 77 and a big bullet there as well. Last one I thought was interesting was the informed defining purpose. The number eight there for Cabrera and Ken McPeak. Had that nice win two back in the year's end at Oaklawn, then gets on that wet fast surface in the Martha Washington at even money and just runs a solid third behind taxed and wet paint. But that should improve wet paint for me. I think I was going to go. I pretty much went on top here with wet paint, grand love, followed by defining purpose. So it's interesting on grand love. I had a different opinion. Um, I was against this horse. First off, I hate betting layoff horses at Oakland. Okay. I just think you need to have a fit horse. Now, you do notice this horse was training at the fairgrounds. If this horse had been training at Oakland, I'd be even more against it. But I do not like horses coming off a layoff at Oakland. I think you need a fit horse the way the track is. On this other thing about this horse, like you said, the horse was better sprinting. And then, you know, Ask Mason thought enough to stretch this horse out. They really thought this horse was special. I mean, they run in the Breeders' Cup, uh, even though off, you know, ran a poor race. Uh, 
in the Pocahontas. I just thought that, you know, gun runners can't stretch, but this is out of a Grand Slam mare. There's at least enough evidence on the paper at a probably short price with Rosario and Asmussen that I would be against this horse needing a race. Also thinking that I thought the, the pace might be a little hot in this race. I thought the one wanted to go. Um, that, that 20 to one on effortlessly elegant uh, for Norm. Norm has been on fire at Oakland. I was a little bit interested in this horse. You know, they paid 475000 for it. But, you know, when this horse is at 5-1, to one, it definitely cools mm-hmm. down there. This, that's an aggressive move, taking a horse from 6 for a long stretch out to a mile of 16 in a grade 3. In general, handicappers should fade horses that are going from a maiden to a grade 3 sprint to a route. That's just not a recipe for long-term success. I didn't think the two, a lot of people were fans of this two for uh, Mike Maker Toehead. Uh, the one thing I'll point out on this horse had been running pretty consistently. This is, you know, a horse that's run eight times. So had a lot of form, all the races uh, till the last race were in the fifties and sixties had pretty much shown what it is. And then all of a sudden you get this 82 and people are like, Oh, this horse woke up. But this was at least the uh, third dirt route for this horse. But what woke it up was Lasix last time. was not going to get the Lasix today. I like to fade horses like that. The horse that kind of gave me an interest uh, at a long price was the number five condensation. This is Chris Hartman, who I said earlier has been on fire. This horse is ignored on the board, 21 to one. His last, uh, sh- her last race was on a sloppy wet track and she improved from a 55 to a 77. It was her first route. Was it the, was it the distance or was it the slop? But she was getting both today. So I liked her. But getting to wet paint, you know, this horse, you know, at eight to five, she didn't lay over this. Uh, she was getting the Brad Pratt money, but like you said, had a she, you know, handled a uh, her first really dirt route, um, you know, state competition really well last time in the slop. I know they thought a lot of the McPeak source, uh, the uh, defining purpose. Uh, she was she was even money last time, and you know, wet pain goes by like she was uh, tied to the pole. You know, that bullet work like you're talking about getting, uh, you know, getting Brad and Pratt here. That was just the horse that made a lot of sense. This horse in one, I think, is like a major Oaks contender, but she just made a lot of sense compared to the rest of these. So I was mainly about wet paint with a little condensation. We're going wet track, wet paint condensation for Clay. I was pretty much wet paint, but also a little bit of grand love in there mixed in. Let's see who gets done here in the honeybee right now. Condensation broke very well. Effortlessly elegant broke poorly. Grand love and condensation with taxed in the center. Do you, do you, do you want to dance and toehead with Olivia Twist? Effortlessly elegant after that bad start is now midfield from defining purpose. Next, it's Boss Lady Bailey and Gambling Girl. Wet paint is second to last early. The trailer is take charge, Brianna. They turn into the backstretch in the 36th. Honeybee and Condensation is the leader from long shot taxed to the outside. Condensation, three quarters of a length. Taxed is second by two lengths to Grand Love and Do You, Do You, Do You Want to Dance. Toehead is in a good spot. Fifth and about four and a half from the front. Outside of her, it's Olivia Twist. Defining purpose and effortlessly elegant. Have eight lengths to make up. Wet Paint is at the rail now. Alongside her are both Boss Lady Bailey and Gambling Girl. Take Charge Brianna is the trailer. Wet Paint still has 10 lengths to make up to catch Condensation and Taxed. 
condensation, a half length in front of Taxton second. No excuses for Grand Love. She's traveling well inside for Rosario and two from the front. Boss Lady Bailey has four lengths to make up. Toehead is within five of the lead. Defining purpose, Wet Paint has still got a long way to come. Top of the stretch and condensation is joined by Tax. Grand Love is in with a chance. So is Olivia Twist at the rail, Toehead. Condensation still in front. Grand Love, Toehead. From the back of the pack, Went Pate is erupting between horses, and she's come from way out of it, and now she's going to roll by and take the lead. Wet Paint, yes! And Wet Paint does get it done. 540 the winning mutual, 83 the winning buyer. Condensation running second with a 78. Buyer paying $14 at Exacta, a nice 43.50 for a buck. Grand Love ends up running third. So pretty much covered all the horses in here. Something that I just love that you brought up in the pre-ramble, talking about Toehead, Lasix. And how important now that we're doing Lasix on, Lasix off for certain races, how important you need to look at how horses run with Lasix compared to off. Is it an extra step in the handicapping? Yes. But I, I feel like, and something that we're just, by doing this show, bringing up, if when you're looking at a race, have a, a notebook next to you with something that's a P for pros and a C for cons. And if you start going through and marking and obviously longer priced horses should have more cons than pros. <laughs> but when you start to do that more often, you can really decide and decipher, you know, man, I'll tell you right now for wet paint at the price that this horse paid to win. It almost did. I didn't feel clean about having a, a win bet on this horse. Like eight to five. Yes. doesn't tower over the field. Like most eight to five should, but I, you probably need like five to two, minimum two to one to bet this type of horse. And listen, Condensation ran a hell of a race at 21 to one to almost come up and get it. And I feel like knowing that I had Grand Love in there as well, even though Grand Love runs third here, I probably in the long run should be betting the horses at six to one here, then sub two to one. And did Grand Love improve a little right. bit? Absolutely. But I mean, we're still now we're going to be into race number five for this one's career, and we're still not breaking an 80 at, at the route races. <laughs> Again, like you had said with the Grand Slam Mare, it's probably going to end up being that better six and a half to a miler than going yep. extra long. Uh, listen, uh, Oaks horses in this race, I, I, I people always ask, you know, every single week, you know, did anyone impress you for the Oaks? And it's like, I really don't. I wait till they get, you know, PPs out for the week of Derby and Oaks because to me, so much can happen between now and then. I don't really like playing futures pools for that reason either. 83 got the job done here, but when you look at what's behind in a horse like Condensation, she'd probably be the horse that's best track or best, you know, surface is probably on the wet. And, you know, 78 to an 83 barely won. Nothing else in here really surprised me. Toehead, like you had said, that Lasix, bet this one next time he goes on Lasix. Don't bet this one without Lasix. And, and I bet you'll find a decent price there, in, you know, between the 5 and 10 to 1 line. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I'd like to call uh, your listeners' attention to a tweet that David Aragona put out uh, either last week or the week before. He he did some analysis on trainers going on and off Lasix, and it was pretty eye-opening. It's not the same numbers across the board. you got certain trainers where their stats don't change at all. I'll call out Brad Cox one there. Mm -hmm. But Kenny, McPe Kenny McPeak's numbers going on to Lasix, and I know he takes a lot of shots and stakes races, and that may be a part of – the data, but there are certain trainers. I think Martin Cassie was another one. Their stats are not good going on Lasix from you know these allowances into stakes races. So if you have that in your arsenal, it can help you make some bets uh, as as these young horses go on and off Lasix in these uh, stakes races. 
at the end of the day, it's just like I was talking about with my friend yesterday. When I'm teaching someone how to handicap, I'm not teaching you to find the winner of the race. I'm teaching you to find contenders. And then over the thousands and hundreds of thousands of races that you handicap, now you have to try to figure out how to put the horses either A, in the best order for your for your exotics or crossing out enough that you can make those profitable tickets, whether it's doubles all the way up to pick sixes. Exactly. Let's move on to race number 11, the race everyone wants to hear us talk about. It's the grade two Rebel, one one sixteen miles on the dirt. What a what a weird spot for, for a lot of these. The one that really stood out to me was going to be an Asmus and, and Torres Runner Red Root Run coming out of that sloppy race last time in the Southwest. Listen, a race over the track, a solid second, 15 to one. At what point now, as we're going through, you know, and this one ended up taking a, a small little dabble down to, you know, nine to one off the 10 to one morning line. The best race this one has run is at Oaklawn in the slop at this distance. I understand there's other horses that are interesting verifying. Listen, when you run a 97 at Oakland going a mile for Brad, that horse is always going to take money and has two wins and four starts. But an 87 compared to a 97, and now this one has to go in the wet with a where it did run second in the champagne with a decent number of 86 that matched up well against Red Root 1. I just could not believe the, the, the price difference in those two. Looking at another one like Giant Mischief, this one, had a 95 and a 91, but again, like you had said, coming off that long layoff in this one again for Brad. For Brad specifically, when I notice he puts in a, a couple horses in each each race, that for me tells me that he is kind of firing with a bunch of different ones and doesn't have one per se that he likes above the rest. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, I would say normally I would tend to agree with that. He has so many uh, three-year-olds in his barn. He's going to have to go two and three win every race. Mm-hmm. He's got about 15 noms. Um, we own a piece of giant mischief, so I can give you even a little bit more color on, on this Colt. This was the spot he had circled, uh, ever since at springboard mile. So he was coming off the layoff and like I mentioned earlier, not, I'm not a fan of that. The other thing about giant mischief, Brad thinks this horse is uber talented, maybe the most talented, uh, three-year-old in his barn, but he has said all along. And I know this cause uh, we own the horse, but he said it in the media He's worried about how far this horse wants to go. This horse mm-hmm. is built like a Mack truck. You do not ever want to take two to one on horses that are have distance limitations. It's just a bad bet. And if you and if you want to even go back to the other Brad, what did I say about last time? Horses jumping up uh, on Lasix. Yeah. You look at verifying his one good race was on Lasix. So now he has to go off Lasix. He's buried in the one hole. He's going to take heat from other horses. I was so against verifying. I would be against him at uh, four to one, but at three to two, it was an absurd price on that horse. Um, if you go down further, red route one, I'll circle back to gun pilot for Steve Asmussen, the four. I thought he made a little bit of sense. I think these gun runners get better with time. He ran well, uh, second to verifying, and then came back uh, and won uh, his uh, two life at Oakland. Giant mischief, as we said. I just thought at a short price, a horse that's got distance limitations. I thought he might could win on pure talent, but you don't want to take two to one on uh, on a horse in that situation. Reincarnate the Baffert. Typically, I like Baffert's coming when they're like the nuts, like in poker when you have the nuts. Mm-hmm. If, if Baffert's sending horses that are not his A horses, like he sent Arabian Night, you know, I bet that horse all day long in the Southwest. I do not like betting his second teamers when they ship. Confidence game. I was kind of mixed on confidence game. You know, at my first pass, I didn't uh, give him a whole lot of uh, um, look. Marshall uh, Graham, my partner in 10 strike, he gave out this horse on uh, the uh, 
Chris Larmy's uh, podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Sport of Kings. So I'm always going to respect something coming from Marshall. I mean, this horse has kind of been banging around, has a lot of class. You can recognize, uh, you know, Instant Coffee, Curly Jack, Damon's Mound. He's been running against a lot of good horses. And, you know, the Marshall's point was keep the Sormo horses 10. He doesn't squeeze on them. They don't – they race into shape and they race into form. So this horse at 18 to 1, there's a lot of um, long shots that it's hard to make a – case for this one had the right company i the reason why i wasn't hard on him because i didn't or you know on him was i thought he was a little light in the speed yeah. figure department but you know he ran well two back and the lecomte i actually bet him in the lecomte was a little disappointing but you know maybe that buyer was a little maybe you can upgrade it uh you know instant coffee did run well two fields came back and ran solid in the um in the risen star so maybe that upgrades but then you got the rest of them talladega event Detail bourbon bash frosted departure. I didn't think any of them had had a had a chance. So I'll circle back to Red Route One on a lot of the things that you said. I thought this horse made the most sense. I thought he was going to have pace to run into. I think he's a little bit of a plotter. He'd have form over the track in the slop. It had run well his best race. Hasn't ever been on Lasix, so you don't have the Lasix on and off. And I just thought at ten to one, you got a lot of value on that horse. I can't agree with you more there. Let's see if Red Route One can get done for me and Clay. In the Rebel, right now. Yell from the Oakland Park crowd. Frosted Departure and Giant Mischief, a hard scent, powerful. These three quickest. Verifying away in fourth. Then comes Confidence Game and Bourbon Bash. Talladega just outside of him. Reincarnate in event detail, and the early trailer is Red Route 1, and they turn to the backstretch with lots of speed on. It is powerful, three-quarters of a length in front of Frosted Departure in second. Verifying and stable mate. Giant Mischief are third and fourth and two from the front. It's two and a half back to Confidence Game. Gun Pilots at the rail, sixth and four off the lead. Then 2-2, Talladega and Bourbon Bash. Reincarnate has ten lengths to make up. He's a length in front of event detail. Desperately last is Red Route 1. One half mile to go in the 63rd Rebel. Frosted Departure and Powerful. Verifying and Giant Mischief watching those two, two from the front. Gun Pilot has moved at the rail. He's fifth now from Confidence Game. At the back of the pack still are Reincarnate, Event Detail, and Talladega around the far turn in the Rebel. Frosted Departure just in front of Powerful. Giant Mischief gets first crack at him, and here's Giant Mischief. Confidence Game is three deep. Two back to Gun Pilot. Talladega is next. Reincarnate still has a long way to come. And Giant Mischief off the top of the turn is joined by Long Shot Confidence Game. And Confidence Game is now a length and a half in front. Reincarnate is trying to split horses to the outside. And Red Route 1 from the back of the pack. It is Confidence Game. Red Route 1 moves into second. Confidence Game. Red Route 1. Confidence Game. Red Route 1 running a second to a game confidence game going off at 18 to 1. 39, the winning mutual. 94, the winning buyer. Red Route 1 running a 92. Reincarnate with a 90. And like we had said, verifying runs right back into that weird spot like you had talked about where we go pretty much into, you know, right in those mid-80s. Right where this one runs off of Lasix. And at this point, you know, if, if we haven't made it enough of a th- thing for beginners and even for the intermediate players Lasix on and off in these stake races matters. It's, and it's almost to the point where it matters almost as like a fourth pillar of, of racing now where medication usually becomes that secondary idea, but 
in class and speed figures, like when your speed figure is bumping 15, 20 points on and off medication, you have to be aware of it and it will help you further on. And it's not like we're talking about throwing out 18 to 20 to one shots because they're off places. We're talking about throwing off four to one and under five to two and under horses here that just don't run well. And listen, Red Route One ran his heart out there. And like you had said, had the race over the track and also over over the surface. And I looked back at confidence game and I saw this. First of all, this horse was a $75,000 sire fee and they only paid 25,000. This horse should not have 200,000 in earnings already now. Plus has the rebel win aboard, but something like you had said, again, if you study these trainers and understand that a trainer like the Sormo likes to race them into shape and listen, that it matters more for me than for the buyer speed figures. And like you said, when they come up a little bit South like that, and just not as high as you need them to be, this one is probably going to always be out of my realm of finding on the card. I don't even know if an 85 gets me there, but really, really nice training job here. Gets the job done in the Rebel. And, you know, now they have to now they have decisions to make. And obviously, uh, Rebel's still a 100-point point race. Clay, so he's it's, a 50 point, it's a 50-point race. So they're in – there you're looking at both the Louisiana Derby and the Arkansas Derby. But, you know, I mean, this horse you're going to have, you know, I want before I bet him in the Kentucky Derby, you want to see how this horse does on a fast track. If mm-hmm. he can back up that number on a fast track, then you can have a little more confidence uh, in that horse going into the uh, Kentucky Derby. But I, I still be a little skeptical until I see, uh, see him uh, back up that number. I, w- I will say this as well for Red Route 1. This is one that now, you know, you could have bet it 15 to 1 on slop and now 9 to 1 on slop. Be careful when this one comes back on the dry track because now we have the opposite effect of, okay, yep. we have two sharp numbers on dry. Is the form improving? I'm probably not taking this horse at under four to one. I, I need something, you know, more oh. middle of the road. And when you see two good races like this, you know that this one's going to be heavily bet <clears throat> having board hits like this. So always be careful. You know, we talk about that so much. Be careful when they go off of the wet track going back to the dry track as well. Right, and I'd also draw your attention on Red Route 1. He is so pace-dependent. So I know I think they're targeting the Louisiana Derby to get more distance, which is the classic what people think that uh, closers need more distance. You know, I would be I would pay attention to see who's in that race as far as uh, pace setup. You do uh, – the last race, the Risen Star collapsed. If you get a lot of those same characters in there that are going to set it up again. But if it looks like a slow-paced race, I wouldn't touch Red Route 1, at least on the top. He may clunk up underneath, but he is very pace-dependent. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Before I let you go, Clay, we talked a little about Giant Mischief and how you guys have a piece of that, but you also have a piece of a horse running this weekend in New York. Kind of give us your uh, download for that one. And also where people can find you on social media to talk everything about you know, the ownership group and also just your handicapping in general. So uh, we have uh, we have Ian Clover in the Gotham. Uh, he's trained by Brad Cox. You've heard us probably speak a lot about Munnings and looking at Lucky. Those are the two sires from the claiming perspective and breeding that we've had a lot of success with. Uh, this is a uh, Ian Clover is a looking at Lucky that our agent Liz Crow bought for fifty five thousand. He won on debut on New Year's Eve at Oaklawn. Uh, ran, I think, like a 78 buyer. Uh, then we shipped him down to the fairgrounds a month ago, and he in a second, a first level allowance. And I think he improved to you know mid 80s, 85, 86, one by nine down there. And he's a horse, you know, he's bred underneath to be sprinty, but with looking at Lucky on top, we hope we have a good combination of sprint route, uh, you know, precociousness from the mom side, and maybe some stamina from the from the stallion, but. We're pretty excited about the Gotham. I think we'll be uh, a major player in there. 
Uh, the race looks like it's going to come up pretty tough, but we're incredibly excited uh, to have our first horse in a Triple Crown uh, point race for Ten Strike. Always. You can find us. You can find us at at, at Ten Strike Racing uh, on Yahoo, or excuse me, on uh, on Twitter. Um, I think it, even on uh, Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm at C H S A N D E on uh, at Twitter. So that's where you can look for us. But, you know, we're still on top, tied at the top of the owner standings at Oakland, which is we've only had 16 starters, eight wins. So we're pretty excited about our home track being the leading owners right now. 50% win rate. Always good to also see there at the top of the board. Thank you so much, Clay, for coming on. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on, Spencer. I want to thank everyone who listens to this podcast and the rest of the podcast on the NMA Media Network. Also, want to thank my special guest Clay Sanders for coming, talking all things Oaklawn Park with myself. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. We will see you next time.